On August the 28th, 2003, a 46-year-old pizza delivery man walked into a bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, armed with a shotgun modified to look like a walking cane, and handed the teller a note demanding $250,000 in cash. A collar bomb was fastened around the man's neck, and the note said it would go off if he did not get what he wanted. Chilling thrills, unexplained mysteries, and creepy stories that actually occurred. Welcome to Freakier Than Fiction. I'm your host, Chad, and each episode, together we will dive into the world of the unknown. So, if you haven't done this already, hit that follow or subscribe button, and that way you won't miss the next freaky episode. As this podcast is intended for mature audiences, discretion is advised. In this episode, we'll be looking at the case behind the collar bomb heist. Erie, Pennsylvania is a city on the south shore of Lake Erie, halfway between New York and Ohio. It was August the 28th, 2003, when a man named Brian Wells arrived at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, where he'd worked as a pizza delivery driver for 10 years. He had been one of their most loyal employees, only ever missing one day of work following the death of his beloved cat. Just after 1.30pm on August 28, 2003, the pizzeria received a call from a payphone at a nearby gas station. The owner could not understand the customer and passed the phone to Wells, who then received a call to deliver two pizzas to eight 1,631 Peach Street, an address that was just a few miles from the pizzeria. The address was the location of a transmitting tower of WSEE-TV at the end of a dirt road. According to law enforcement, upon arriving at the television tower, Wells, who was said by authorities to have some knowledge of the crime, found that the plot had changed and learned that the bomb was real. Wells's family disputes this account of the events at the television tower, as according to them, Wells was accosted at gunpoint by strangers and forced to participate. The details of events at the tower that led to the bomb being attached to Wells's neck have never been firmly established. After the bomb was applied, Wells was given a sophisticated homemade shotgun which had the appearance of an unusually shaped cane. He was then instructed to quietly enter the PNC Bank at Summit Town Centre on Peach Street and give the teller an affixed note demanding $250,000 in cash and to use his shotgun to threaten anyone who would not cooperate or attempted to flee. Upon entering the bank at around 2.30pm, Wells slid the note to a teller. The note stated that the bomb would explode in 15 minutes and that the full amount must be handed over within that time. The teller wasn't able to access the vault that quickly, however, and gave Wells a bag containing around $9,000 in cash with which he exited the bank. At 2.38pm, 
a witness called 911 from the bank and reported a male leaving the bank with a bomb or something wrapped around his neck. This was the first known emergency call for the incident. According to witnesses at the bank and surveillance footage, after entering the bank, Wells waited in line. When he reached the counter, he began sucking a lollipop. He appeared confident as he left the bank, swinging his cane gun and the bag of money like Charlie Chaplin, according to one witness. Around 15 minutes after Wells had left the bank, he had completed the first task of what was a treasure hunt. He was proceeding with the second task when police saw him standing outside his automobile and promptly arrested him, handcuffing him and left him sitting on the ground in the parking lot. Wells said that three unnamed black people had placed a bomb around his neck, provided him with the shotgun and told him that they would kill him unless he committed the robbery and completed several other tasks. The responding police officers did not attempt to disarm the device, instead focusing on clearing the immediate area of pedestrians and ensuring that Wells could not detonate the device. The bomb squad was first called at 3.04pm, at least 30 minutes after the 911 call from the bank and about 10 minutes after Wells was arrested. At 3.18pm, three minutes before the bomb squad arrived, the bomb detonated and blasted a fist-sized hole in Wells' chest, killing him in seconds. Traffic congestion in the area delayed the bomb squad's arrival, but personnel from the ATF still considered their response appropriately quick. His eyes just got real wide, and then they went to the back of his head, and that was the end of him, Lamont King a former Pennsylvania State Police Supervisor said at the time. Wells's corpse was found with nine pages of handwritten instructions addressed to Bomb Hostage, directing him to rob the bank. The instructions also included a scavenger hunt, listing a series of strictly time-based tasks of collecting keys that would delay detonation and eventually disfuse the bomb. The pages warned that Wells would be under constant surveillance and any attempts to contact authorities would result in the bomb's detonation. Act now, think later, or you will die, was scrawled at the bottom of the instructions and this made police think that there were multiple conspirators involved. In one bizarre twist among many, it was found that it was not realistically possible for Wells to complete the instructions in enough time to save himself from the bomb. Many years later, key questions in the case labelled the pizza bomber and collar bomb heist remained the subject of debate, despite a prosecutor endorsed theory of the crime. Could Wells really have been a victim of the same bank robbery that he helped to carry out and who else was involved and what was their real goal? As a federal agent was quoted as saying in 2003, it defies logic that a human would do that to themselves. But in all my years on the job, it has never ceased to amaze me what people will do and what the possibilities are. Complimenting matters for some, 
Those who eventually identified as being involved blamed one another while protesting their own innocence. Investigators ultimately determined the device which included four locks and a combination dial could never have been safely removed and investigators were at first baffled by the arcane intricacies of the crime. Immediately after his death, investigators searched Wells's house and found a list of people he knew, including two prostitutes unknown to other members of his family. One of the prostitutes he frequented, Jessica Hoopsick, knew Kenneth Barnes, who was known for dealing crack and whose house was used by prostitutes. And this is where police began to put the pieces to the bizarre crime together. It was at Kenneth Barnes' home where he, Marjorie Deal Armstrong and William Rothstein discussed ways that they could make money. Marjorie suggested that Barnes kill her father, Harold Deal, so she would receive an inheritance. Barnes told her that he was willing to do this for $250,000. The collar bomb bank robbery plot was then hatched to obtain enough money to pay Barnes to kill Deal Armstrong's father. In return for a reduced sentence, Barnes later told investigators that Deal Armstrong was the mastermind of the crime and that she wanted the money to pay Barnes to kill her father, who she believed was wasting her inheritance. Marjorie Eleanor Marge Deal Armstrong had a history of suffering from multiple mental illnesses including bipolar disorder since her early teens and seems to have been a serial killer. Before her mental health deteriorated in her 20s, she was an exemplary student in high school and earned a master's degree from Gannon College. In 1984, she shot her boyfriend Robert Thomas six times as he lay on the couch but was acquitted on claims of self-defense. Her husband and several other partners also died under suspicious circumstances. According to police, a month before the robbery, Deal Armstrong had asked her friend Kenneth Barnes if he knew how to build a pipe bomb. Around that same time, she also gave two egg timers to William Rothstein, a handyman and former boyfriend who likely built the collar bomb that killed Wells by blowing a gaping hole in his chest. On September the 20th in 2003, Rothstein, who lived near the television tower, called the police to inform them of the body of a man, James Roden, that was hidden in a freezer in a garage at his house. After he telephoned police, he wrote a suicide note indicating his planned death had nothing to do with Wells, but investigators did not believe that Rothstein ever attempted suicide. Roden had been living with Deal Armstrong for 10 years. In custody, Rothstein claimed that Deal Armstrong had murdered her then-boyfriend Roden with a 12-gauge shotgun during a dispute over money. Rothstein said that she paid him $2,000 to help hide the body and then clean the crime scene at her house. In January of 2005, Deal Armstrong pleaded guilty but mentally ill to third-degree murder and abuse of a corpse for killing Roden and was sentenced to between 7 and 20 years in prison. 
She is believed to have killed Rodan to prevent him from informing authorities about the robbery plot. In 2007, Deal Armstrong and Barnes were indicted for their roles in the deadly bank robbery. At a news conference announcing their indictments, Mary Beth Buchanan, the US Attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania at the time, said that Wells had also been part of the plot. Unfortunately, our investigation has led to the belief that Brian became involved in a limited role with a group of individuals who planned to rob the PNC Bank, she said. It may be that his role transitioned from that of the planning stages to being an unwilling participant in the scheme. Sadly, the plans of other individuals were sinister, much more sinister, she said. Brian Wells's family was present for this announcement and vocally protested this allegation. Deal Armstrong and Barnes were both eventually convicted of conspiracy and armed bank robbery charges. Rothstein died of terminal cancer before he could face any charges and Deal Armstrong died of natural causes at a Texas prison on April the 4th, 2017. She had also been diagnosed with cancer, the Erie Times News reported at the time. On top of her sentence for killing her boyfriend, Deal Armstrong, 68 at the time, was serving a life sentence after being convicted for her role in the robbery. She was found guilty of using and carrying a firearm during and in relation to a crime of violence, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery and armed bank robbery, officials said. In 2008, Barnes was sentenced to 270 months for conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, using and carrying a firearm during a crime of violence, according to FCI Coleman Lowe, the federal correctional facility where he's currently incarcerated in Florida. He's expected to be released in 2027, prison officials said. Jessica Hoopsick, a woman who was Wells's friend and sex worker, confessed on the Netflix documentary Evil Genius that she set Wells up to participate in the crime by providing his name and delivery schedule to one of the conspirators in exchange for money and drugs. Hoopsick expressed regret for her role and said Wells had no ad advanced knowledge of the robbery. ATF agent Jason Wick stated that Hoopsick was uncooperative in 2003 and that authorities had always believed that she knew more about the case. However, Wick also expressed concern that she might not be a credible witness. The Pennsylvania Department of Corrections said Hoopsick had been in the state prison system for theft between May 2012 and July 2014 when she was paroled. In January, Hoopsick was sentenced over a drug charge but paid a $100 fine and did not have to serve time, according to her public defender at the time. Although Marjorie Deal Armstrong is remembered today as a serial killer, the epitaph on her grave reads, Death by the Legal System. Deal Armstrong and her pizza bomber operation are the subjects of a Netflix true crime docuseries called Evil Genius the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist, and is well worth a watch. Thank you so much for listening to the Freakier Than Fiction podcast. 
If you got something out of today's episode, and you haven't done this already, hit that follow or subscribe button, and that way you won't miss the next freaky instalment. And I'd love your feedback, as it will really let me know what you think about this episode, and others that you may have already listened to or seen. So, please take the time to leave a review, and tell me what you'd like me to cover in upcoming episodes. If you want to get in touch, you can find a Linktree account in the description of this episode that has the links to all my social media accounts, including Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. I make sure to read all my direct messages and answer them personally. So if I see you on Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, YouTube, TikTok, or anywhere else, just know that I really appreciate all the support. And remember, take care out there and be aware. See you in the next episode.